Be Fabulous with Vibs and Vicky, the ThinkShift podcast for professionals who aspire to be fabulous leaders, those who not only succeed, but also purposefully seek to reinvent the world. Welcome again to the Be Fabulous podcast. I'm uh, super psyched to be having, um, to kicking off a new series, actually, a new series. This time we have... um, uh, a fabulous person and friend of ThinkShift, uh, Will Harrington, is going to be joining me for these three episodes while Vicky is, uh, actually, she's away. She's uh, up somewhere in Grand Tetons at the moment. And um, what we thought we'd do is we'd invite some you know, some fabulous people, guests who have made that transition effectively and maybe with uh, with a certain amount of pain to superstar performer, then awesome manager and to top-notch executive but instead of doing it in the conceptual way that we've been doing it thus far, we thought we'd drill in to specific uh, crafts or specific occupations. And in this case, um, Will comes from the world of programmatic trading, which he's going to explain to you um, the details of what that means, because I guess those of you who are in programmatic trading know, know exactly what that means. Those of you who don't know what programmatic trading is probably have no idea what that means. Um, and so... The, the way we're setting this up is the first episode will be on on his reflections and how he succeeded as a superstar performer. The second episode will be on that 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 circle of suck we talk about to being a great manager or an awesome manager. And then the third one we'll do is his most recent journey to being a top-notch executive that uh, you know, I'm glad to say um, myself and some others at ThinkShift have been a small part of. So with that, welcome, Will. Thanks, Vips. Good to be on. Will, I, I just want to kick off. Do you want to just give everyone just a bit, bit of an introduction, kind of who you are and what you do? Yes. Yeah, so um, Vips, great to be on, as always. Uh, I am the SVP of account management at uh, MIQ Digital, um, and I've spent the last 10 years in the kind of programmatic landscape. Um, quick little history of that, because I know not all of the ThinkShift listeners know programmatic or know trading. Um, so at its core, programmatic is the process of buying and selling ads through the use of software. You know, back in the kind of Mad Men days of advertising, um, publishers sold their inventory directly to advertisers. Um, And we've been through a long transition since then with the introduction of ad networks um, that consolidated that publisher information and sold it right to advertisers. And then the introduction of exchanges that consolidated the ad networks. And then when the kind of manual side of that became too cumbersome, Um, programmatic was kind of born, which is um, buying in more of an auction style. So it's uh, RTB or real-time bidding, um, where those ads are bought in real time um, as you load your page. Um, And these are not the traditional search ads you'd think of. Um, These are display, video, um, your OTT ads that you see on your connected devices, Um, even digital out of home, which people might uh, think of as those video billboards you see Um, all over when we were able to be outside uh, a little bit more. Um, But the programmatic trader kind of sits in the driver's seat of that ad buying process. Um, So they spend the majority of their time sitting in a DSP or or a demand-side platform um, where they're making the decisioning on what the kind of very intricate decisioning around audience targeting, around bid types, 
um, around the way that they're going to be purchasing those ads. Um, and without going into too much detail, um, they basically are making the decisions on how we hit key metrics for our advertisers and then we, the way we drive towards an outcome-based uh, performance model. So, so to dumb it down for those who are not in the advertising space, um, how, how complex and sophisticated has that got? Because it's, it's a relatively new industry. Agreed? And when I mean relatively new, I mean it hasn't been around for 50 years. Right. Um, it can be as complex as you want it to be. So a lot of the DSPs that are around now um, have done a lot of work to create um, their own internal algorithms that will do a lot of that decisioning for you. Um, it's something that we put a lot of pride in MIQ, um, working on the kind of more granular manual side of it. We put a lot of the decisioning in our traders' hands, um, and we think that the expert making the decision um, is the most important part of that. So I think you look at the huge benefits that AI provide um, across our industry, um, and you can't have that kind of value without some kind of human backing to it. So I think the human intelligence side of it is such an important part of when to use um, kind of new technology um, and how to use it. So I think a lot of, a lot of development over the years, um, and it's even just since I've been in the industry, some huge leaps and bounds with, with how we work within DSPs. Well, it's um, certainly a very adaptable industry, right? It's changing it is. extremely fast. And, and I think, you know, that's one of the biggest parts of becoming, you know, part of the industry is that it's an always changing and always growing industry. So I think it takes the right kind of person to be okay with that kind of landscape as they, as they enter it. Yeah, that's, a, that's probably a pretty good segue, really, into... So I, I want, I'd like you to sort of cast your mind back. So what were your motivations? If you cast your mind back to, you know, when you were a little bit younger than you are today, and, and you were, you know, you were, you know, presumably you, you moved to New York to, to live the American dream. Uh, if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere kind of thing. Um, and I'm putting words in your mouth right now. I have no idea if that was the case or not. Um, but I'm really curious, as you started out your, your sort of career and you were, you know, what, what I would describe as working your way to mastering that craft, you expressed it as being an expert. You know, what were your, what were your motivations at the time and kind of any observations that you, you, you that, that maybe set you apart because you were very successful. I know you were very successful at, at that stage of your, of your career. Um, I'm very curious. What were your motivations? What was driving you? Yeah, I think so. I transitioned from the world of finance into programmatic trading. And I think for me, um, being a natural problem solver, uh, the idea of coming to a creative solution on my own, um, which is a lot of what traders do. So I think you think about most problem solving, there's usually a, a very binary path to getting to the right solution. Um, within programmatic trading, it is a little bit more creative. And while there are usually walls to stay within, um, certain traders might do things a little bit differently and get to the same outcome. So I think the ability to make your work your own um, and to really kind of set the bar for other people in the industry, other people in your company, in the way you do things, um, was really appealing to me. And I think the idea of becoming an expert in something new um, and joining an, uh, an industry that we kind of talked about that's always evolving, so there was always an opportunity for continued education, um, was a huge motivator for me. And I think that kind of idea of continuing to grow internally um, as the industry kind of evolved um, was an important piece to me in, in making the transition. It's, it sounds like a pretty, um, how can I put it, unstable environment, 
that you were in. Is that correct? Um, and did you find that a lot of people who seem to have the the skills, the, the, the competencies, if you like, the hard skills, the ability to do the math. Um, I, I'm curious, did, did you see some of those people that you thought were better than you slip up while you didn't, if you will? Yeah, I think uh, that's a really good point. I think a lot of what you would think on the surface of someone that is in a role like a programmatic trader is going to be a very kind of analytical, introverted person. Um, a lot of what people don't think about is, especially in this industry, um, the growth path is almost like a roller coaster. You know, I think I, I explain that to anyone that I've hired that their first six months to a year is going to feel that way, especially being new to the industry, is that one day they're going to feel like they finally have got it and they know everything and then something new is going to come up and they're right back down to the bottom. So getting used to dealing with change, getting used to, you know, pushing your way through. And I would say, you know, we talk a lot about circles of suck and the development in general, um, in your career, I would say that in the programmatic landscape, people go through that on a micro level at each level because there's so much information and there's so much um, new products, new channels, new verticals to learn um, that people are always have something new um, to develop in. And that can be tough for people. And I think it can be tough for people that, you know, going back to the kind of math side of it, it can be tough for people that have that kind of very you know, kind of analytic mind to transition that into a role where, you know, they might need to explain it to people that, that don't have that same kind of mind and that, you know, are on a different side of the coin and whether it's um, someone that sits in a different part of your organization or whether it's someone external, being able to conceptualize the work they're doing is really hard for some people. Um, and I think that's where a lot of people that are very, you know, analytical um, but don't have that kind of people side of things um, get tripped up in the industry. Mm. So when you, when you were, to cast your mind back, so when you were at that stage in your life, yeah, what, did, um, what did you associate with being successful? You know, because presumably you were working, you know, at least one hour a day. Right. I would say, um, and this is going to take me going back in my mind a little bit because sure. it's a little different now. I'd say, you know, that younger me was probably three things. You know, it was money, recognition, and influence. And it was anyone that's new to their career that doesn't say that money is a motivator to them or a measure of success, it's probably lying to you. Um, the recognition piece, I think... I, I'm not sure that ever changes, Will. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been, sorry, I'm going to pull you off track just for a second, go a little sidebar. I've been reading a book called The uh, Elephant in the Brain. Um, I should probably link to it. If you Google it, you'll see I can't remember the name of the authors off the top of my head. And, it, and it's really talking about, you know, that there are certain types of motivators which are, how can I put it, socially acceptable to talk about, and then there are, there's the elephant in the brain, which are, which are the motivators that we all have that we don't want to talk about. And it's very interesting that what, what you described there feels a lot like in this book was the kind of motivations that we all have, but we kind of hide them away in a closet somewhere because we don't want anyone to see them because it kind of makes us feel, or makes, might make other people judge us in a different way. So um, anyway, slight segue. But when, as you said that, I just had these triggers and I thought I'd just share with the listeners that if they want to read more about that, learning to become more honest with what truly motivates us. Elephant in the Brain, great book. Well, I think you can break down any of those things. It's not just the money that's going into your bank account. It's probably how you, how you feel with that increase in money. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of psychology that goes along with that. Um, but I think for me, you know, especially as an individual contributor, you look at recognition and influence from an internal perspective are huge 
kind of signals of success. And I think what that looks like, or what it looked like for me then, was you're being recognized for doing a good job. Um, you're getting the visibility of other people in the company. I think you're being put on more projects. You're getting more visibility into the interworkings of the company. And that is what I use to measure success. I think you look at responsibility as more project work, higher profile work, the ability to mentor or train new people. Um, the kind of influence is a visibility piece, right? So that's involvement in strategic planning or you know, even getting a little bit of tie into any communication that's going to the C-level that, that adds that kind of motivation for someone. So I think if you pull the financial side out of it, the motivation is really um, a visibility thing. And I think when I look back on what success or what I looked at as success then, um, I wouldn't have known this then, but I think looking back now from the level I'm at now is there's a common theme of trust across anything that you're measuring success in, and that is more trust from the people above you, more trust to be autonomous in your day-to-day -day work, um, and then the trust that you can be responsible for things outside of your regular job description um, and that you'll continue to move the needle forward with that. Will, did you find that, you know, at that, that stage in your, in your career, did you find that, that you had to be given those opportunities or did you feel that you had to hook and crook your way, if you will? Like, did you have to self-empower yourself? I mean, to say it more pleasantly, did you have to self-empower yourself more to those opportunities or, or were you like, um, you know, expecting your manager or your boss to basically do that for you? I'm really curious as to how that works in your world. So this is two-part answer here, I think. Um, any good manager is going to put is going to see the strengths of their team and is going to point them towards projects that they think they'll be impactful. But as an individual contributor, um, you should always be looking for opportunities to kind of expand your internal network. And what that looked like for me then was working on projects across other teams that at that point I was just really interested in. And I think getting to work with, you know, whether it was our supply side or whether it was working with our engineers, getting to work on projects that expanded my knowledge of what other pieces of our business did, um, and at the same time kind of driving the success of my group forward. It was two parts. I was improving things for myself, and I was improving things for my team. So I think while good managers are always going to find good project work for their best individual contributors, um, the best individual contributors are also going to be always looking for an opportunity to improve themselves. So... I don't think that anyone should be relying on the person above them to point them at project work. I think that's really fascinating. But you, you know, something that I want to pick on that you said was um, you, you gravitated towards the things that you were interested in that were cross-departmental, let's call it that, um, you know, outside the scope of your specific tasks, for want of a better phrase. I, I'm curious, in, 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 my, in the world I operate in, I have I have noticed that particularly over the last ten to last ten to twelve years, more people are kind of falling into their jobs, falling into their careers, and so they don't they don't they don't necessarily know what they're interested in, so so it it um, so they don't have that intrinsic push to go and go and just learn and do other aspects because it it, it feels safer to stay in your lane. And, and associate success with just churning out more tasks. And I'm, I'm, I'm super curious about that because I, I, I would think that the world of trading, you know, both from your financial background, but then into programmatic training, I would imagine that's the kind of thing that, that many who are in your industry 
would would be like, yeah, that's all well and good, but really all that anyone's going to care about is the, you know, is, is the is the is the trading margins that I'm able to to rack up. And at the end of the day, you know, I want my Ferrari by the time I'm 28, so whatever. And, I, I, and that's a bit of a stereotype, but I, I'm really I'm pushing you to try to either tell me that's the, that is the case, or you've seen some trends in that space, or if you've noticed that. You know, the fabulous few that truly make it, for some reason, don't do that. And then how you identify them. I think this kind of goes back to the influence piece of it, right? And you look at just inherently who people are going to with questions, with problems. Um, it's the people that have expanded themselves into other groups. And it's, hey, you're a subject matter expert in this product or that product. Or as an individual contributor, you know, and I think this is something that I tried to do um, that I've realized is is hard to do at each level as you go up is be an expert in everything and i think that can burn you out so i would not recommend anyone tries to be an expert in anything in everything um but being able to be the source of of answers for people's questions um was not only a huge motivator for me then um but kind of increased that visibility that i had within the organization is knowing that people could come to me and whether and i think this is something that's developed throughout my career and it's um, part of building that kind of network internally through project work, through kind of working across different disciplines and teams in that, um, is that I've always been able to either answer the question myself or know who to go to to get the answer quickly. And I think that is such a huge part of, of having influence at every level. And I think I always tried, once I figured out that I couldn't be an expert in everything, um, I've tried to work really hard over the last probably half decade at least, um, to be more of a T-shaped person, you know, an expert in one thing and a, a good baseline knowledge of everything else. I think that's where you see that influence come in is, you know, you've got that deeper level of influence um, across one discipline, um, but you have good understanding of everything else that goes on in your organization. Um, yeah. We used to call that mile wide, inch deep um, as a, as a it's T-shape. But did you recognize that at that point in your career, though? Because my, my view is people don't generally recognize that until they get asked to, in some way, shape or form, manage others. I, I didn't. I think, you know, if there was advice I could give myself now um, or give that past version of me, it would be not to be not to try and be an expert in everything. I think I spent many stressful days and weeks and months um, thinking that I wasn't good enough because I wasn't an expert in everything, um, when I probably knew a lot more than I probably should have as an individual contributor because I had expanded kind of my knowledge base. Um, and I think that part of being the best at everything, um, a kind of pie-in-the-sky thought that everyone wants, is not, is not a realistic possibility. I think the faster people can understand that um, being good at more things and being the best at one or two things um, is a lot more impactful, the faster they'll kind of develop in their career. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's an interesting tension though you bring up because because on the one hand, I, I think you're making the argument for some level of breadth above and beyond the depth. That's not to say you shouldn't be good at something and highly proficient and craftful at something. But, but, I, I, but that, does, um, that does have create a tension between the recognition that you described earlier, the, the recognition and the influence, because it's easier when you're earlier on in your career to have recognition through, through depth of expertise than it is to have recognition and, you know, and being showered with praise 
from the perspective of breadth. When I would say that's where the two kind of split, you know, your recognition as an individual, as an individual contributor is always going to be as a specialist, but your influence is usually going to span beyond that kind of specialist nature. Yeah. So your influence within a discipline that is inherent for specialists is going to be when you can have a scope beyond that kind of specialist role. Yeah. So I think the recognition as an individual contributor is always going to come from the work you're doing that impacts your immediate role or your immediate outcomes of kind of your group. And then your influence with your peers and even with kind of your entire group is going to come from what you do outside of that. Yeah. You know, what you're talking about, you know, I tend to call the performance versus growth trade-off. You know, the performance tends to get you the, the you know, the name in lights, um, but it doesn't tend to grow you too much. Whereas the, whereas the influence, as you're describing, tends to create lots of growth, but you, you know, but you might not have people, you know, singing your name from the rooftops as much. And, and striking that balance is almost what should be the difference between compensation on performance, if you will, and promotion. Although I think in the last 10 years or so, we've really confused the two. So people just think of promotion and pay as the same thing. So we, we've lost that distinction between the idea of growth on an axis and performance on an axis. When I think that our, and maybe my generation in particular, puts so much emphasis on upward mobility, right? And I think there's nothing wrong with being a specialist and, and finding something you love and staying in that kind of discipline. I think you look at a company like Apple that rewards people on 10-year anniversary of being in an individual role, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think if someone finds the right specialization for them, and that's where they excel, not everyone wants to be a manager, Agreed. be an executive. You know, They want to have impact where they feel the most reward from it. Yeah. So I think there's too, much, there's too much put on kind of growth as a measure of growth on the kind of pyramid of yeah. management versus kind of specialization, which I think can have the same kind of rewarding uh, career improvement. Yeah, where, where I think the rubber hits the road on that one, though, is I, th I think a lot of people are very comfortable being in their domain in terms of what they're doing, and they're quite happy until someone, someone that's a friend or a peer or someone that they thought they were turns into their boss <laughs> and, or, or, or seems to be, in their perception, seems to be elevated relative to them, even though they're very comfortable doing the job that they're doing and would want to do a more let's call it management-centric or an executive-centric type role. I think, I think there's a, the rubber hits the road when, when, when you experience um, what feels like an inequity in terms of how that is recognized and rewarded at a systemic level inside organ or structured level inside organizations. Well, I think you bring up an interesting point because from a systemic level, I feel like a lot of people, when they see peers um, be rewarded with promotions or with new titles, um, I think a lot of people see that almost as a demotion to themselves rather than someone around them doing well. And it's, uh, it's funny to look at it that way because nothing has changed in their role. And, you know, I think if there is another piece of advice I could give myself, it's, you know, the world is bigger than you. You know, everything, every decision that's made isn't a decision made with the scope of it impacting you. And I think you know, not letting that slow down your thought process or the way that you go about your own work um, would have saved me in a lot of situations over the years. So I think, you know, being true to yourself and, and what your growth is, um, is such an important thing to kind of 
think about as an individual contributor. Yeah, yeah. I, I do wonder that, that in my experience, it really is less than 5% of people are able to get to that place when they're at this stage in their career. And, and I think most of it's, I don't know, maybe it's one of those things which um, <laughs> only the wisdom of having gone through it makes you realize how foolish it was. I, I do wonder that because it's a very hard thing to, I mean, I'm not sure I would have accepted that. I, I used to hear that my, 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 you know, from, my, from my mentors, from my parents. Um, but but there, is, there is also, um, you know, often for particularly people who are bright and go in places at that, at, that, at that stage in their career, there is also a bit of uh, impatience. It's the only way I can describe it. Um, in, um, impatience, you know, s- s- somewhere on that, on that line between um, arrogance and self-confidence. Um, and um, which, you, which, you, which you want to encourage because it creates so much um, sort of creativity and different ways of thinking about things. But it can also be kind of foolish sometimes. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I almost wonder sometimes whether it, it's almost more, more important for us to structurally create the systems, the management structures, to, to really allow a threshold of that kind of experimentation. Because I, I, I don't know if teaching people or telling them is ever going to work. It, it's a little bit like old, you know, old, old person telling young, young person something. Young person's like, what well, a problem is, you, you old people. And I, I just don't know. Like, you know, I have that with my son who's 13, who clearly knows how to, how to rule the world. Um, I just wonder with some of these things, you know, is the onus more on us structurally to create the environments for them to... Uh, for, for other for, for superstar performers to discover those for themselves by and the phrase I tend to use is um, engineering engineered suffering. I don't mean that in a nasty way. I, I just mean that I, I think in the last five to ten years we focused a lot more, which is a good thing, on making the workplace and the professional environment supportive, caring, and more more in tune to what people need it to be, which I think is a wonderful thing. But like with everything, whenever something is taken too far, I think it has a negative consequence. And, and one of the negative consequences, I, th- I think, uh, we, we tend to grow most when things go wrong. <laughs> we don't tend to grow so well when things go right. And, and so consequently, you know, some environments have almost, um, I, I don't think MIQ is a good example of this, but, but some, many, exa- many environments I see, in, in the desire to make things supportive and caring, don't allow the creation of the scar tissue to be able to have sort of the core competencies that are going to be required for later on in the careers. Uh, I think it's a fascinating, um, um, I'm sure someone has figured out some algorithm that can tell you, you know, exactly what's the right level of, to quantify, you know, what, what, I'm, what I'm kind of jokingly calling engineered suffering. I don't, I don't mean that in a nasty way. I don't mean that in a cruel, vicious way. I just mean in terms of optimizing the amount of time on the learning edge. Well, I think that, that ties into everything in life, right? You know, we do our most, um, our most concentrated learning when we're suffering or when something's going wrong. I think I was an athlete my whole life, you know, and I think you and I have talked about this a fair amount. I remember the negative things that happened, the games lost, um, the workouts that I quit on a lot more than the ones that went really easily. Um, and that's part of what has helped me develop that kind of mental side for that. It's like learning and it's, it's an iterative process. It's always going to be developing, but 
being able to learn to lean into those negative times, and I shouldn't even call them negative times because really they're positive, um, is just leaning into discomfort and leaning into a feeling of something new and scary. And being able to look at that as growth rather than discomfort is a really important thing for people to grasp. And, you know, the mid-20s version of me would have said that was bullshit. But I think... Uh, it's something, as you said, you learn throughout your career, and you know, discomfort is a good thing. Yeah. Um, the presence of harmony, and this goes across like your role in, in an organization, like harmony isn't always a good thing. And that's why circles of suck. That's why you know, healthy, healthy debate among an executive team or among individual contributors is just, really just amongst good. human beings right now would be quite yeah, pleasant. Exactly. <laughs> and it's, uh, I think it's a really healthy thing. And I think more people um, could learn to look at discomfort as a positive. Yeah. So I, I got to ask you, so when you were in that stage, in the world of programmatic trading, yeah, how, did the, how does the environment look at you as being successful as a superstar performer? Like what, like, you know, forget what you think is successful, which, which you've kind of talked about a little bit. But, but what, in, in that world, the, the powers that be, if you like, that you are now part of, you are, you are now in that echelons as the powers that be. Um, what, what, what do you, what, how is the environment going to measure that someone is successful and in, in that, at that stage? Like, what would you, how would you boil it down for, for someone who's, you know, a year into that world and trying to figure out which way is up? Yeah, I would say a lot of it is like kind of binary performance metrics, as we talked about. You know, it's um, for a programmatic trader, it is, there is outcome-based work that you're doing 80% of the time. So being able to drive to... Um, the objective of your client or, you know, we live pretty heavily in the performance-based work in our industry. Um, so there's always a cost per anything that our clients are looking for. You know, it's a cost per pair of shoes off the shelf. It's a cost per test drive off of the car lot. Um, and what our traders are doing is they're working internally in those platforms, working with our product team, you know, working with our, our analyst team in India um, to drive insights that can go back to those clients um, and to drive the actions that our clients are looking for. So from a strictly kind of binary scope, um, you can measure someone's success based off how well they reach those goals. Now, they're not always realistic. They're not always ones mm -hmm. that um, we're going to be able to reach. Um, but the ability to kind of drive outcomes is an, an easy metrics for people. Um, and then the ability to adapt is a huge one in programmatic trading. You know, we talked about how fast the industry changes. But the adaptability of, listen, there's no cookie-cutter way of trading an, an ad campaign. So being able to have almost an engineering mindset going into it, you know, test, fail fast, learn, kind of adapt the way you're doing things, um, is what makes really good trader. And it's that kind of understanding that you need to have a mindset around always improving and always trying to have changed the way we're doing things. So I think while it's pretty easy to measure the success of a trader on hard metrics, the amount of work they can handle, you know, the profile of the accounts they're running, um, their ability to hit those key metrics, um, their thought process and the way that they go about their ideation around the way something should be done um, is a really important part of that as well. So, so can I kind of drill into that a little bit? So the question I want to ask you is, it, it takes a certain type of character that thrives, that thrives against the backdrop of needing to adapt quickly, 
Yeah. And so, you know, we, we you know, a thing shift, you know, we, 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 we sort of break that down into the four D's being delab, being deliberate, being dynamic, seeking discovery and being daring. And what I'm curious about is have you developed the knack now of being able to see like the human characteristics of those who you know, ultimately are going to be successful, but ultimately going to be happy. Like, like they, they can hack it because I, I don't think that's for everyone. Like, you know, I, 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 you know, I think there's, you know, there's people who orientate more to predictability of process. Tell me what I need to do. I'll go and do those things over and over again. I'll get super efficient at doing those things, but I don't, but, but, you know, when you're in that world, you, you tend not to have a outcome orientated mentality. I mean, I, mean you, I think you have to have an outcome orientated mentality if, if your process is going to be moving around all the time because the environment's changing so fast. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really curious, like when you recruit, when you, when you're, you know, when you get around a table and you're trying to figure out, you know, who's doing really well and who are the rock stars versus who are the ones that are doing okay and might take a bit longer. Do you, do you end up having, do you end up having those binary conversation on the metrics more or do you have a, do you, do you would you tend to have a conversation more on the sort of what I'll describe as the character attributes of what you can see? It's very hard, right? It's very subtle what I'm getting at. But I'm, I'm really curious as to when you guys sit down and evaluate people, when you're evaluating people, um, what do you, what's your balance there? Or is there one? Yeah, good question. I think uh, it's two parts. It's both, right? So when we're interviewing, um, there obviously is a core set of skills needed to be successful as a programmatic trader or in the programmatic industry in general. You know, if someone comes into an interview and they've never been in Excel, we're probably not going to hire them. That could be a problem. (laughs) But I think part of the kind of critical thinking side of things, and it's why you see um, some of the companies that have been around forever, the bigger ones, the the Googles, the Amazons of the world, um, ask really interesting kind of case study questions to try and get the mindset out of the people they're interviewing. Those, those questions that you hate to see passing around around about how many golf balls fit in a school bus kind of thing. And part of that is figuring out, you know, the way someone's critical thinking process works. And it's not just a pure binary, well, probably this many because the diameter of a golf ball is X. Yeah. Um, but more of kind of what's your process to getting to that answer? What are the additional questions you're asking? What's kind of the testing landscape that you're looking at? to get to your final answer. And I think it's a, it's a unique kind of person um, that has really broad critical thinking skills, but also can operate in that analytic mindset. And I think it's why programmatic trading is such a unique role. And I think across a lot of different disciplines within programmatic, you need that kind of heightened level of analytics um, paired with the critical thinking skills. Because even some of our best salespeople um, that I've seen across our industry are ones that, you know, think really analytically um, and use that in the way that they pitch our products and our process to our clients. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do find, I, you know, to me, you know, when I, when I go up a couple of levels, I, I find that really fascinating leadership challenge because one might argue that, you know, particularly against the backdrop of trying to make you know, recruitment, uh, performance management, evaluation, promotions, all of these things as fair as possible. And, and, you know, the whole idea of when you hire someone, are you paying them for the job that they're doing? Or are you paying them? How much of it is the job that they're doing? And therefore, therefore, you know, how someone is treated, how someone's rewarded, how someone's developed should be the same, meaning 
the same is good because it's equal, right? Versus, versus how much are you really investing in a character and a journey as opposed to, which, which is, to, I mean, there's no way for that not to be subjective because it's got to be at some level unique and individual. And I think it's, it's a really interesting, um, at, a, at an organizational structural level, I think it's a really interesting challenge because at a human level, we all want to feel like we are treated fairly. But I think particularly for fluid, fluid and adaptable environments, you, you almost bet more on a character rather than their ability to execute against the task. It's almost like the execution against a task, like table stakes. It's like, I just, I just assume that's there. And I would say, and it's I tricky. would also say, before you continue with that, I would say like, Everyone wants to feel like they're treated fairly unless they're the one that's not treated be, fairly and it's getting a benefit. So I think it's an interesting one to deal with. And I think, you know, a lot of what you can recognize is kind of potential in someone, you know. And I think that is rarely ever kind of the binary outcome-based measurement that we look at for people or for individual contributors. You see personality traits, you see kind of the influence they have on their peers. And that's where you see kind of that potential for people. Um, it's how well can you transfer your superstar abilities to other people without micromanaging them and just doing it yourself. Yeah. All right. So I, I, I want to kind of tighten us up and bring us to a close. I, I want to I ask you like two, two very pointed questions that are kind of like the takeaways, if you like, from, from this conversation we've had today. And, and that, you know, to me, you know, top three, le top three big lessons that you could tell your younger self, what would they be? All right. So I would say, I would say first, like, and this kind of goes back to something we talked about already. Um, as an individual contributor, everyone always wants to be perfect at everything. Um, not being scared to put your hand up that you don't know something to learn. Um, the separation of kind of growth and anxiety, I feel like, lives in that realm. And being able to be open to continued learning um, is a huge thing that I feel like a lot of individual contributors are scared of. And the is it, ones is it because they think they're going to be found out? I think it's that little bit of imposter syndrome of, you know, I don't, I don't know my role enough, so if I keep asking people for help or if I keep asking for something new, um, they're going to think that, you know, I'm replaceable or there's someone, someone that can do this better. Yeah. And I think when really what they're doing is they're trying to grow their abilities. Um, and that's something that should be fostered and that should be fostered internally as well as externally. Um, on that one, I think the second one would be expanding your network, you know? And I think that goes into the kind of T-shaped approach of an individual contributor. It's like work with other departments, make connections in, on other teams. Um, you know, being a part of a team is such a huge value add um, in any industry, but being able to have that team expand to other departments, you know, make time to sit and learn something about a new product or a new approach that our engineering team's taking, like that just increases your influence on the way that your team does things. So I think while people focus so much on being specialists, I think everyone would gain kind of traction from learning a little bit more about what someone else in their organization does. Well, so, well if you said... I'm putting you on the spot here. I know there's no, I know there's no obvious answer for this, but I think it sometimes helps people focus their minds. So if you're talking to the audience that are in that, that are at that stage inside your company, and you're saying that over a month, yeah, how much energy should I be expending on being the baddest ass expert I can possibly be 
versus doing what you just described, what would you say? Give me my it's percentage a tough, split. I, it's a tough balance. I think like anyone that becomes a really strong individual contributor should be able to do an individual contributor's workload with 80% of their time. Right. I would say probably 10% of that time should be spent on expanding their knowledge base on other teams. And it's that doesn't always have to mean, hey, I've scheduled a meeting with yeah. this person that released a new product. It's go get a coffee, go get a beer with someone from a different department and ask them about what they're working on. You know, Dude, I, I would think, kill to go and have beers with people right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's a completely different story. But, uh, but I, would no, go I, I get your to, point. I, get I would your go point. listen to anyone talk about anything right now if I could go sit at a bar. But uh, I think... That kind of expanding your network, and that's expanding your network from a, connect, a connectivity side, but also from a knowledge-based side is so important for an individual contributor. Um, and then the last, because you said three, the last, and I would say probably the most, what was the most important one for me um, that I didn't do, but I would tell myself if I was looking back, is compare yourself to yourself. You know, And I think you mentioned the idea of someone else getting a promotion in that, kind of feeling like a, a slight against anyone. Um, if you're developing and you feel good about where you are, don't let anything else throw you off that course. You should always compare yourself and your growth and your abilities to yourself six months ago, maybe. Um, and I think that's a really healthy way to look at life. It's, you know, if you are growing in a way that you're happy with, um, you shouldn't be comparing yourself to other people. Yeah, very wise. Very wise. Um, they, they kind of they kind of rich to us. We could probably dig deeper into those. But um, so, as a kind of teaser for the next one, what's the pain and misery, the circle of suck, if you like, that people who are then asked to take on additional responsibilities? So they start that journey. They get promoted. You know, they get everything they wanted. They get promoted. They have a wonderful new title. They go out and blow their bonuses on whatever it is that they blow their bonuses on. And next thing you know, you got team, right? Get, get, like in in. 20 seconds, tell me the pain, like, empath give me the pain and misery that it feels like in that circle of suck, and that's what we'll go into in the next episode. I, I think you go right back into the pain of the unknown, you know? You're doing something that you've never done before, and while you might have the inherent qualities to be a really strong manager, you've never done it before. You don't know how to deal with um, the binary running of a team compared to when something you know, completely out of your control pops up, and it might be something that someone's going on in someone's personal life that you don't know how to deal with, it's you hit this whole new level um, of challenges that you've never faced before, and you have no idea how to deal with them. Yeah. And I think that is where that pain comes from. No idea how to deal with them. Maybe that's, maybe that's a good place to leave this. Any, any closing comments or thoughts you have that you, know, you want to really get across and, and talk to that group of people? Um, yeah, I think just kind of back on those three things as an individual contributor, like give yourself a little bit of a break once in a while. You know, I think being a perfectionist um, isn't all it's cracked up to be. I think driving deep on your special, your specialist kind of nature um, and making sure that you expand into other disciplines is really important. Um, but knowing that kind of failure is a part of the growth process is something that everyone should be thinking about. Um, and it's always looked at as a negative, but I think as long as you're not failing on the same thing over and over again, um, it's a real sign of growth. And I think being able to embrace that failure and that growth kind of feedback loop um, is something that more individual contributors could get better at. That is wonderful. Um, 
Well, thank you for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been so natural. So from my point of view, it's, uh, it's, been, it's been really cool. I hope you've enjoyed it too. And uh, very much looking forward to the second episode. So um, thanks everyone for listening and be fabulous. <laughs> <laughs>